Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the Tribe Exchange. We're excited to have our guest, Dr. Timothy Summerlin, with us today. Uh, Dr. Summerlin earned an undergraduate uh, degree at the University or uh, Indiana University, a master's degree at the University of Missouri, and a doctorate in education and col- and a doctorate in education and counseling from Colorado State University. Uh, he has had career paths, including being a teacher, a minister, and for nearly 30 years, or actually more than 30 years, uh, a counselor in the public education. Uh, he's the founder of In Motion Counseling, a research-based curriculum offering programs and courses that use biblical concepts to assist others in the journey towards lasting change. Uh, he's authored several publications, including The Grief Journey, Finding Peace in All of Life's Losses. And since 2016, Dr. Summerlin's also served as dean and professor of the Rocky Mountain School of Ministry and Theology. So Dr. Timothy Sutherland, great to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Elias. I'm really looking forward to spending some time with you today. Yeah. So let's just jump into things. I know you've uh, you've obviously got a lot of education and specialization in uh, counseling, and I think particularly you've really leaned into the uh, the avenue of grief and grief counseling. I got to read through your book, uh, The Grief Journey. Um, and so I'd love to just kind of hear how, how did the spiritual journey go that you it came about to for to you to be a doctor uh, in counseling and uh, and doing this work within motion and how, how did that all come about? What was that spiritual journey? Oh, thanks for asking that. Yeah, it's a kind of interesting one, and I'll be as honest as I can because it it has some pieces of it that um, that were just very challenging. I actually uh, was very happy as a school counselor. I worked down in Dallas, Texas, for several years, and. Um, my wife and I, with our family, decided to move to Colorado about 20 years ago. And after we got to Colorado, our church up here went through some really difficult challenges. And, um, and at the same time, my daughter was beginning to go to school up in Boulder at the University of Colorado. So I was just kind of burned out on church a bit, and uh, I wasn't going to leave church, but I didn't want to be very involved in it. I was going through some recovery time for myself. So I would go up to Boulder every week to take a class and then get time with my daughter. It's just kind of my excuse to go up there and hang out with her. Um, and I got very interested in, in, the, in the PhD work, and I ended up at Colorado State University and uh, spent four years up there. I'd travel twice a week, drive up there and take classes. Uh, but one of the things they kind of drilled into us was you got to do something with this work. You're you, you don't want to get a PhD for PhD's sake. Right. You want to go do something with it. So when I got done with my PhD, I looked around, and I just didn't like the way our churches did recovery. It seemed very stiff and harsh and uh, formulaic. It didn't seem to fit Christianity very well that, that mm-hmm. I was thinking about. So, yeah, I just uh, I, I didn't like the whole idea. For example, the Purity Brothers, you know, you'd always see them go downstairs in the basement after midweek, and everybody kind of knew who they were. And I just didn't like that feel. I didn't feel like there's a lot of dignity about it. I saw a difference in the way Jesus did things, the way he treated people. So that just got me thinking. I just started putting lots of research together, and I came up with what we call now Disciples in Motion. 
as a recovery ministry and it just took off. People started calling me about it and did a lot of traveling with it and wrote a book on it. So yeah, that was kind of the spiritual side of the recovery uh, part of it. And then um, at the same time, I was going through some really tragic things and losing my mom and dad Mm. and uh, grieving those losses. And once again, I felt like I just always had this deep belief that the church is a great place to do stuff like this. It's the church has so many features of it that are really strong. And we have so many components that are very helpful that I wrote a book on grief and I brought, I just brought the church life into it that people can grieve their losses in a church setting probably more effectively than almost any other setting I can think of. Yeah. So that's what I wrote the grief journey book. Um, and again, I, I just believe in uh, what we have at church. It's not perfect, but it's a, uh, to me, it's like the best community going as far as trying to handle some of life's challenges. Yeah, and I want to get to some of that even. I think that's a real, you know, that that community uh, component of our grief. I think that that's, man, there's something really special about that. And I'd love to unpack that in a little bit here as well. I'm, I'm curious, you know, um, you talked about the kind of the difference of, of how we approach things or how the church in general has approached uh, specified ministries, you know, whether it's purity or, I don't know, a chemical recovery ministry or something like that. And, and that you felt like there was more, more in the pedal for to get out of this, right? There was something more that was still missing a component. Um, and, and I think you referred to it as, as recovery, like actual recovery. Right. And I wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit for us. How, how did you come to the belief that there was there was more available uh, in the in the recovery process of of dealing with things? Yeah, good question. So, you know, I totally get to see our ministry. Um, they they take people oftentimes who aren't doing life very well. They're barely hanging on. And they, so when they come along, they can have a really they they can have like a good structure for those people to get them back on track. So I. So the work they do, I really honor and appreciate. I work very closely with those people. But I think what happened was we were applying that to purity. We're applying it to other people who were doing life pretty well. They didn't need that strict hand-holding kind of mentality. Um, So, and and then the other thing, I did some research, and the effectiveness rate was pretty low on those kinds of ministries. And again, I, I looked at the lack of dignity we were giving people. We were kind of ostracizing certain sins over other ones. So I decided to make a ministry that included everybody. So Disciples in Motion is a recovery ministry for any person with any issue at all. Mm-hmm. I just felt like we needed to open it up for everybody um, and not just single out certain things that our society or our church you know, highlights as the worst sins. Sure. So that's what got me going. Um, and then I noticed, like we started off a little bit on the addiction side, but then I noticed a lot of people are coming from all sorts of reasons, childhood abuse issues, right. anger, bitterness, uh, marriage problems. Just all, people just needed a space to start working on stuff. So that's what we offer them was uh, a space to come in and, you know, we, we give them structure, we give them confidentiality, um, but then we also emphasize the role of the church. Like church has some really great features like relationships. We value 
highly value relationships. And that's that's essential for recovery. So I kind of blended the two. I, I brought in confidentiality and safety that no one's allowed to ever talk about what you do at InMotion. But I also said, listen, because you're Christians or for visitors, you know, we tell them this is a church setting. We should take advantage of that stuff. We should take advantage of things like relationships and uh, honesty and, you know, Sunday sermons that, that can be very meaningful for people. Yeah. We should take advantage of those things in our recovery as well. What do you think the difference is from, like, what difference does community make? Because what it sounds like you're talking about is more of a, a holistic approach, right? It's not just programmatic. It's not just information, but it's it's great information with kind of the you know, the, the scaffolding of a good program approach, but it's integrated with community and relationships. And I'm just curious what, you know, even in your observations over the years, what, what is the difference that the relationships make in that process? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it's really, it's interesting to me how much training I got as a school counselor to think about church settings. So in a school counseling situation, you think in terms of what are all my resources out there? So parents, community, uh, teachers, coaches, all these different resources. Because I realize it's interesting in schools, you only get about half an hour with a kid on any given week. I realize that what they do outside my office was way more important what they do inside my office. Mm -hmm. So I would work a lot during counseling on their social life, like, what is it like out there when you're being a regular kid? So in the same way, in the church setting, you know, they come to in motion um, for an hour and a half a week. We have like nine week sessions. But I realize that outside of in motion is where most of the work's going to happen. So, so again, I think in terms of a church setting where um, so people know me, first of all, I've got people that know my whole story. I've got people that I've been with for many years. So they know me in and out. Um, we have like this sense of grace or hopefully we do, you know, that I, you know, I can share stuff and I'll be okay with them. They're not going to walk away from me. Um, generally speaking, there's a non-judgmental stance, although we have to work on that as a church. There's just so many features in a community that make a difference. So, uh, it's kind of where the rubber meets the road. You know, if I'm struggling with something, I can't wait till next Sunday to go to group for it. I, I want to call my friend up. I want a friend to come over and pray with me, or I want to just bounce things off people. And again, most people I know outside of a church setting don't really have that kind of community. It was interesting to me that at AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, the their success rate is about 17%. But of those 17%, most of those people make AA their community. In other words, they recover from alcoholism because they spend so much time with that community. Right. So even their success rate was dependent upon the community they develop with people. Well, and that's really interesting because, I mean, I think that, so that is the secret sauce, right? It's community, it's the accountability, it's the encouragement, it's the empathy, the compassion, it's the admonition if you need it. It's it's all the things that come with community that that really help us change. Like information alone is not transformative, right? It's maybe for a short a short stint, like it'll get you it'll get you through the week or it'll get you through maybe a season, but but if you're really after 
recovery, right? Holistic change. You need you need good information. You need good teaching. Uh, you need you know a, a roadmap, some sort of scaffolding on how to apply that. But then you need relationships. We need people, and right. I think that kind of you know that as a as a culture, at least in the West, we have a long history, at least in America, at least of, of being very independent, right? Community, uh, we probably started out in a pretty good space in community at least, but as we have gone West, uh, not just, fi- you know, geographically, but figuratively and in our, in our relationships, um, we've become more and more independent. And I think there's plenty of research out there right now that's saying, you know, hey, emp- empathy is on the decrease as, as independence and autonomy is on the increase in our culture, right? And um, and I wonder, you know, even in an area specific like grief, which 2020, even into 2021, there's so much loss. And um, whether it's the loss of, of a job, a career path, or the loss of a life of a loved one who's, who's passed mm-hmm. away because of all that we're going through, um, you know, I wonder... What, like, what, what changes do you observe happened from, from, you know, a time when we were, we were a pretty tight knit community. We were in small, um, cities, maybe mostly townships. And then maybe even within your neighborhood, you knew your neighbors and you did life with your neighbors. And man, if somebody died, there was a, there was a communal process, you know, that, that went into play where, I mean, people were buried in the backyard, like the, the, the funeral home was your house. And, um, that's not our situation anymore. Right. We're, we've, we've evolved in quite a a way, but what are some observations from that? How has that affected our ability to, to grieve in a healthy way? What's, what has come with that independence that maybe hasn't been so healthy for us in that process? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Great question. And certainly the pandemic has really exhibited that in our country, hadn't it? You know, as a country, we've had a really tough time um, kind of getting our arms around the pandemic in a way that other countries do pretty quickly because they have, uh, they just have more mechanisms to quickly shut things down. But so to me, that's like a metaphor almost for where we've been with grief. You know, I just got through reading a book called The Art of Dying, which is pretty, my wife got it for me for my 64th birthday. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what the message was. Yeah, hopefully, it was really good. hopefully it wasn't a, uh, there's nothing subtle being said there. Yeah, yeah exactly. I saw it on my Kindle wish list, so she got it. But um, he, the hospitals are designed, our medical professionals are designed to extend life. And so what happens is we almost get this false thing about dying isn't going to happen to me. And if it is going to happen, I'm going to drag it out as long as I can. So we don't die well. We die in these isolated places. Um, you know, we we, uh, we don't die at home very often. I was blessed in a sense that my mom and dad both were able to die in their home, um, surrounded by loved ones. But I think that's a problem, and, and so certainly that's infiltrated our churches, right? Our churches, you know, we're, we are products of our society. We don't like to talk about death very much. Uh, maybe we're better than some. Um, I know I have to do a lot of teaching on how do we help one another in grief. That's half my workshop is in grief is on how do we help each other? What do we say? What do we not say? You know, and one of the things we've gotten into that a lot of people kind of do is they try to fix people's grief. So we often will say things 
we're trying to be good. We're trying to be like helpful, but we see things that are really harmful to people because grief is just so difficult for us to accept. And so we try to fix it by saying things like, oh, it'll be okay, or they're in heaven, or, you know, um, time will heal this, quit feeling bad, you should be over this by now. And instead of, you know, there's a proverb, Proverbs 25, verse 20, or see the other way around, maybe. It says, like, taking somebody's coat on a cold day or pouring vinegar on a wound, an open wound, that's what it's like when you sing songs to a heavy heart. In other words, when we try to fix people, we try to say things that make them quit feeling bad. We just make things worse because we're not used to sitting with people in pain. And so I'm trying to teach people what helped me the most was people that were just present with me. And just, Tim, I'm so sorry to hear this. Right. Can I sit with you? Can I, can I just be with you? Yeah. Um, they didn't try to fix me so much. I think that's a big thing for my work is um, how do we as a church help one another through these major life events? And I tell people, listen, you think it's been bad lately? All this whole class of people my age that became Christians back in the 1980s, <laughs> we're all getting super old. Like we're starting to, we're definitely losing our parents. But it'll be not very long where we're really losing each other every week. Like, you'll look around your fellowship, and there's that guy's gone. And we've got to get good at this stuff. We've got to get, um, we've just got to get a lot better at helping people with grief. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. It seems like we've, you know, what, kind of what you're saying is we've, We've automated it in some ways, right? Like we've moved it uh, a little bit farther away from ourselves. Somebody else, you know, I guess there, there was a time where when somebody passed, we, we, the family dealt with the body and the, the body went into the living room for a period of time. And that's where the right. funeral procession happened. And, and people, exactly. like you yeah. said, people died at home and not in isolation and, and those kind of experiences, but we've kind of uh, we've removed ourselves a little bit from that, and that there's there's been some consequences to that. And one of the things you talked about with was just us not knowing how to really now now that it's it's happening to us in whatever way it happens. It's what do we do? Or it happens to somebody that we know, so they lose a friend, or they lose a parent, or they lose a child, or something happens, and 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 just the the internal dread of what do I do? Right? I just had a conversation with a friend uh, last week who. Uh, he had a, uh, unfortunately, he had a, a cousin who was very young, uh, die, uh, sorry, actually a, a son of his cousins. Um, and so this guy, you know, he, he's going to go see the family and he just called me and just really not like, Hey, what do I do? Like, I, I don't even know what to say. And this is his family, right? He knew this, this young man and he knows mom well. And, and, but even though there's intimacy and relationship, there's connection, there's fan, it's, it's, it still feels so um, confusing and, and perplexing of how do we enter into that space with somebody else? And one of the things you talked about was people just being present. And I think in your book, you know, you, you talk about holding space for somebody, right? Like having, a, having 
a, a sacred space where you you just yeah you hold the moment i think that's the language that you use exactly. you hold yep. the moment exactly. for somebody maybe you can just yeah. talk about that how do we do that what does that look like to hold space for somebody to hold a moment for somebody who is grieving yeah that's a that's a softball question for me because i'm gonna try to knock that one out of the park but um because that's something i'm very uh, intimately close to. Um, so for me, there's two pieces to it. One is I have to learn to hold on to my own emotional moments. I've got to learn to be comfortable with my emotions. And, you know, it's really interesting in John 11, Jesus wept at the loss of his friend Lazarus. He didn't cry. Crying is something you can control. Weeping is uncontrolled crying. Mm -hmm. Jesus, Jesus let it go in front of the very people he was supposed to be helping. And so I, you know, I have to knock down that whole cultural norm of, you know, be strong and all that kind of stuff. And I, I do these workshops all over the world. And that's a, that's a worldwide culture. Men and women are not supposed to cry. They're not supposed to do that. So I just tell people right off the bat, like, listen, discipleship is being like Jesus. He cried, he wept. So I don't want to hear it. We're, we need to break through that. So one of the things for me is just being comfortable with my own emotions. And a quick story, I was uh, I on Mother's Day after my mom passed away, I'd go to church and, you know, the, the brothers are up there singing the mama song and the little girls are walking around with carnations to give to moms. And I couldn't handle it. So I'd get up and leave every year and I'd go stand out in the lobby for like 20, 30 minutes because I just didn't want to be emotional. And then finally, several years ago, I just got a conviction that this is honoring my mom. If my emotions are there, to let them be what they're going to be, quit being a hypocrite. So I sat in that church service on that Mother's Day and cried, and I, I was fine. I lived. I didn't die, you know. So I learned I can hold on to my own emotions, right? And it's okay to cry in front of people. And Jeremiah was a weeping prophet, right? So then uh, I'll tell you the second half of this story, though. Once I learned to be comfortable with my own emotions, we had a, um, a great family in our church, and they've given me permission to share this, but the Thompsons, Walter and Rachel Thompson, and they lost their 19-year-old son to suicide. He had a mental health diagnosis, and it was obviously devastating. These people are just wonderful family. And one of the times I met with them, maybe a couple of weeks after uh, Nathan died, or not Nathan, I'm sorry, Nick died. Um, I was talking to Rachel, the mom, and um, she was crying and she said, Tim, I, I just need Nick to come back. I need him to come home. It was a very emotional moment with her. And she kept being very, obviously, quite irrational. But because I learned to hold on to my own emotions, I was able to hold Rachel's emotions with her. And I stood there for 20 minutes with her as she, so my temptation was to say, hey, Rachel, I'm so sorry, but Nick's not going to come home. But I didn't do that. I just held on to her emotions with her. And I, as interesting what happened was um, as time went by, she became, began to talk much more rationally. Like, you know what, Tim, I just miss Nick. I just miss the guy. And I don't know how to live my life without him. I learned a valuable lesson that if I can hold my emotion and let it be what it's going to be, that I can do that for other people and not try to stop them. And their emotions are what God uses to process our grief. So, you know, like I said, Rachel finally started kind of being more rational. And we've done that a few times now together, the two of us. We've just been able to help each other like that. 
And so, you know, one of the things is just helping people to be, this is okay. Like your feelings are fine. And you just be authentic with them. God wants mm-hmm. you to be authentic. And so uh, it, it, even in grief group, we don't let people touch each other when somebody's crying. We don't allow people to pat them on the back or rub their back or rub their leg or shoulders because that stops the emotion. And that's how God uses our tears to clean us out. That's what tears are. That's God's way of cleaning out our souls. But when we rub shoulders and backs during the process, then we can really stop that in a bad way. Now, I tell people later on, of course, please hug them. Please rub their back and shoulder. But in that moment, is it, is it that it's kind of, it's almost saying, Hey, that's, that's like, I don't know, subconsciously it's telling the person, Hey, that's, that's enough. Like calm down or stop, stop letting it out. Is that the idea? Exactly right. Yeah. It's Mm. exactly the message we give people and, um, and our culture supports that in a major way. I mean, I sat at my mom's funeral with four brothers of mine, right? Five boys in the front row and nobody's going to cry. And right. I said, forget you guys. I'm, I'm crying. It's my mom, you know, and uh, you know, I was the one to cry, but my culture around me was, was yelling at me. Don't do that. You're going right. to make a fool of yourself. Right. Well, I know in, in your book, you said, you know, when we, when we refuse to fully engage our grief, um, we become strangers to others. Right. And so I think that's the, that's the, the proverb of all of this that we're talking about, right. That there is, there has to be a journey inward with our own grief first in order to really be able to empathize uh, in a meaningful way with others. And uh, it sounded like you were able to do that through your own process mm-hmm. first to be able to to hold that space for Rachel mm-hmm. as she worked through it. And, um, you know, you, you talked about some of the universal elements of grief in your book. And, and you know, you said there's kind of a, an element of shock and numbness where you know, you can, you can, I'll let you unpack that a little bit, but there's an element of shock and, and, and numbness. There's a, there's an element of disorganization, which sounds like maybe that's maybe where Rachel was at. And then, and then there's an element of reconstruction. And um, mm-hmm. so maybe you could just talk through that. Cause I think that's helpful even to kind of know where you're entering with somebody, what, where, where are they sure. in what elements happening in the moment? Um, it might be helpful just sure. to, to understand those a little bit better. Yeah, that's really good. Um, so we've gotten away from the stage theory a lot, you know, the uh, five stages of grief. That was actually written uh, by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross as a way of people with terminal illness dealing with their own life ending, not a way of grief. So we've gotten away from those stages, but there are still there's still some categories, I guess you could say, of people. And, you know, that first one is numbness and denial. I remember I, I knew my mom was, was going to die any day of her cancer. But the morning I got a phone call from my dad, the first words out of my mouth were, um, are you sure? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> he called me to say, your mother just passed away. And the first thing I said was, are you sure? Right. Which was just an example of, like, denial. And what it is, is God's way of protecting our body. It's God's way of um, shutting us down in a sense, I believe, to try to handle uh, devastating news. That's why we remember 
where we were when Kennedy was shot or where we were when the um, uh, Challenger spaceship blew up. We remember those things because our bodies go into this major denial uh, phase. And it's so we can handle it. We can cope with, you know, going to a funeral. We can, we can cope with getting up in the morning because um, our body's trying to protect us. So that's just really common. It's not unusual. It probably took me several days to get out of that with my mom, especially, but my dad as well and other friends of mine. But then we do get into that disorganized. Like, I remember waking up about three weeks after mom died. I remember the first thought was, how do I live my life knowing I'll never see her again? Hmm. And um, that was that disorganizational piece. That was that... Uh, I don't know how to do life right now. How do I exist? I mean, I, you know, I knew how to exist, like getting in my car and go to work in the morning and pay the bills and all that. It wasn't like that. It was more like, actually, how do I relationally do life? I talked to her, you know, a lot. She lived and she was a big part of my life for 50 years. So that's it, where you're just trying to figure out, like, how do I how do I place that person in my life now? So we work on that a lot in our groups as we work on, it's really interesting what, what our groups, the goal is, is to restore relationships with those that we lose. So one of the ways I got reorganized with my mom was I had to deal with some of the unresolved issues in our relationship. And that's what our group kind of like leads people toward. We teach a lot about grief, but at the end of the day, we're trying to help people resolve um, the relationship of the person they lost. Most of us, for different reasons, have unresolved issues back and forth. So that was part of my reorganization was um, was resolving that with my mom. Hmm. And then we, we teach people to build memorials or to build rituals around their loved one. So um, that's kind of the reorgani reorganizing place for me was, what does my mom mean to me now? Like she's been gone for 14 years. What does she mean for me? Um, and so I do things uh, to remember her. I have a, a quote memorial in my home of her picture and their ashes and a couple little things on the piano. That's my place I go to and think about them. And, and then I try to put stuff they taught me into practice on an intentional, intentionally in honor of them. So we do different rituals and, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one real quick. Uh, um, I, I hope your audience is okay with this. We'll find out if you yeah. tweet me out or not. <laughs> but on the morning, the morning my dad died, he was a Marine Corps pilot. On the morning he died, he died on a Sunday morning at 7 a.m. The five boys are standing around his body. And my dad always had this saying, you know, he goes, it's five o'clock somewhere. Let's get a room and coke. <laughs> that was just something that we, we grew up with that. Yeah. We practiced it. So here it is, 7 a.m. My little brother goes, hey, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. That's right. Let's all pour let's pour rum and coke, and let's talk about dad. So we all poured us rum and coke at 5 or 7 a.m., and we each got to tell a story about dad standing around his body. Yeah. And so now every January 1st, that was the day he died, January 1st, we all do that around the country with our families. Wow. We all sit down. We all sit, like I sit with my wife and kids, and we talk about my, their grandpa. And we all have a rum and coke, and then we post it on Facebook. That's great. That's just a way that we uh, that. we kind of keep him alive in some ways, and yeah. you know, we talk about his courage and the wars and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I teach people find what's appropriate for you. Sure. 
so that you can keep that memory alive in a meaningful way. So people do – this one brother, his mom used to – she used to make a big bucket of, like, German soup and feed homeless people. So every anniversary on her death, he makes this big thing of German soup in Los Angeles and goes out and feeds homeless people with it. It's just a way that he keeps her alive and meaningful in his life. It sounds like what you're saying is there's there's a way to even after the loved one's gone to restore relationship. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you talked a little bit about that kind of working out maybe things that are still unresolved and you're doing that in a community, you're doing that with people. Um, it sounds like that's what emotion uh, provides even a space to do some of that work. Uh, you know, you talked about memorializing them in some form, whether that's a picture on the mantle or it's, you know, the, the once a year rum and Coke at eight in the morning. Um, and then, and then learning, uh, or taking the things that they've taught you and applying those things. Um, mm-hmm. is there anything else like how, are there other principles we could think through even just of, of how to become better at grieving ourselves as we experience loss? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I tend to be a super positive guy, so excuse me for my positivity, but, um, I do find God working in so many areas and I, I discovered a principle in the old Testament that God uses memorial stones to help us make decisions in our current lives. So for example, when I went to Washington DC several months ago, I go into the Lincoln Memorial and I read the um, inauguration speech that Lincoln made on the wall and it inspires me to go out and be a better person, right? So in other words, here's a man that lived 150 years ago, but he still makes me a different person today, right? And that's a memorial. That's a that's a way God does memorials. He does them every Sunday for us in church. We, um, you know, we take a communion every Sunday of bread and water. Right. Why? We're trying to remember somebody that makes a difference to us today. So I'll give you a quick story. I was working on my doctorate and uh, my dissertation. I, I was not built to be a PhD. Just trust me on that, okay? I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. But um, but I'm working on this dissertation. I get super frustrated with it. And I stood up from my kitchen table, and I was like, I'm done. I'm finished. I'm going to quit. You know, I, I have four years into this thing, and I was getting ready to quit it. So I walked into the room in our house that has a piano with my mom's picture on it and I just started talking to her I'm like mom I'm tired of this I don't think I'm right for it I'm gonna quit you know mom's been long gone at this point and I'm not one to talk to the dead so as I was doing that though her voice came back to me right it wasn't an audible voice but in my heart I heard her and she was speaking to me, right? She said all the things she would have said. Tim, quit complaining. Tim, get back to work. Right. Tim, I don't want to hear this from you anymore. <laughs> and so I walked back and I finished my dissertation, of course, to defend it. But it's an example that my life was going to go in one direction or another. Yeah. And because of my relationship with my mom, it went in a different direction. Yeah. And so I tell people that's a living memorial. Peter even said, he goes, you guys are living stones. Like, so I, I bring this ancestral kind of approach right. from the scriptures into this thought that you, you're still who you are today and you'll be a different person if you will honor 
and bring about to light who your loved one was and they're good things my mom my mom wasn't a perfect person like i said we had to work things out right but um there was so much that she taught me that i still continue to use today and i honor her for that i i still say that's still alive in my life even though she's been gone for 14 years now that's beautiful is there you know is there one maybe guiding principle for somebody who I don't know, you know, the unforeseeable happens and they experience this tremendous loss and um, and they don't have the roadmap. It's not in their culture. They don't have the the in motion group that they're already familiar with. They don't have the the, the way forward. Is there is there a guiding principle at least that we can keep in our pocket for for that moment that will kind of point us in the true north? Sure. Yeah, I'll uh, just let you know, John Lusk, he was our, our senior minister here for many years in Denver. Um, he did the funeral for Nick, the boy that killed himself. And, you know, here there's 400 people in the church auditorium, just grief everywhere. And one of the yeah. points John made, he said, listen, he said, I know a lot of you right now are have judgment in your heart for what happened. And I was convicted because I did. I was thinking like, well, how did he get a hold of the gun and yeah. things like that? John said, how many of us have 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 benefited from the compassion of God? It's a rhetorical question. We've all benefited from God's compassion in our life. He said, then why won't you give um, that compassion to this family? And it, I, I think if you're looking for one underlying thing, it's compassion. Is that we don't have to explain everything. We don't have to know everything. But Jesus was great at having a compassionate heart. The Bible clearly says he was filled with compassion. Yeah. He saw situations that, yeah, there's probably reasons those situations happen. But he would just be filled with compassion to help somebody. So I tell people they even want to lead these groups. I say, listen, you don't have to be a perfect leader person. You you just have to be a person of compassion. Yeah. And you'll figure out the you'll figure the ins and outs out. Yeah. So that's the one thing I say is we work with each other as we deal with ourselves. Just even for the griever to have compassion on themselves, like God's a God of tender mercies and um when we have a loss, we need to treat ourselves well. We need to take care of ourselves. We need to be honest with God about what we're feeling and thinking. Yeah, God's a God of compassion. Well, and I think I think that's important because, I mean, I know for me in my own kind of journey with grief for loss, and and in my work in the ministry, what a lot of times I'll tell people is there is no one way to grieve, right? Because I think. My tendency and a lot of people's tendency is, okay, how do I do this right, right? Like, especially if you have some sort of awareness that grief is important and you 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 want to deal with it right, you go, okay, what do I do? You know, how do I deal with this right? And, um, and how, you know, I don't know. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look differently yeah. for every person. What I do tell people, though, is, is I think what's, What's important are the ingredients, right? That that you don't isolate for a lo- for forever, right? <laughs> Long term, isolate. Like you may need a space of isolation, right. but don't don't cut yourself off from people. And 
Um, but also to be compassionate with yourself that you're going to, there is no one right way to grieve. And, um, and that feels really uncomfortable as somebody from a Western culture, right? Where we have very like specific times and spaces. And, you know, I think about family funerals I've been to, it's like nobody cries up until the one moment in the, you know, um, funeral or something that then there's a space to cry. And, and then you have other cultures where they have days of crying and, you know, mm-hmm. parading through the street. And, and that's just not the culture that, that I grew up in or that I think most of, you know, the Western world uh, practices. And so there is this mm-hmm. kind of what we talked about earlier, this this disconnect of how do I do this in yeah. a way that's right when we've got this storm of chaos and emotions and thoughts and, um, the disorganization, the numbness and all those things kind of, I'm sure they're overlapping and happening at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so I love that idea. Yeah. Just, just compassionate, being, being compassionate with yourself, giving yourself that space to, to, mm-hmm. to have that, you know, whatever yeah. it is going to be for you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, well that's well said. Well, um, this has been a fantastic conversation, really helpful, really practical, uh, where where can people find out more about your work and and what you're doing? Yeah, good. Uh, thank you for sh- uh, letting me share it. Yeah, I've got a website called uh, InMotionCounseling.org, and it's uh, a place you can go to see what I you know kind of places I've gone to, what I do. There's there's actually a button on the top where you could get a free um, like a weekly blog on mental health in the church setting that I send out every week, just kind of practical stuff. So that's a way to um, to learn more about me. And then if you're interested, they can send me an email. There's an email box on the bottom. I do a lot of Zoom meetings. It's really interesting, Elias. Um, when the pandemic started, I thought I was going to shut down and hibernate for a year. Yeah. I thought, okay, I'll go, I'll go write a book or something. Right. What's happened is this ministry has exploded right. because of Zoom. And I've done, I don't know, like 40 different countries and cities in the last wow. year. And so if they're interested, I love to talk to them about the church. If I could come out and do a Zoom uh, workshop on grief, or I've got a bunch of other ones I do just on mental health and raising up leaders in that way. So yeah, go to my website, inmotioncounseling.org, and uh, I'd love to get to meet some of your people. Awesome. Well, Dr. Timothy Summerlin, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for uh, for being here with us. Well, thanks so much for inviting me out. I've really enjoyed our time and maybe we can do it again sometime. Yeah, likewise.